Everyone still looks uncomfortable. Perhaps they all remembered that old saying, power corrupts. Second Officer Slog, episode 26. I'm your host, M. With me is my regular co-host, my number one, Jackson. I'm the number one. That's you. That's me. We're here to talk about a Star Trek book. Finally, we do all these Discovery episodes, but Discovery's over, so it's time to talk about a book again. Wow, that ending, right? The ending will air in about five hours, so we don't actually know what the ending is. We have no idea, but... uh... That's, that's how the record... Man, it is five hours. God. And I was thinking, what am I going to do tonight? I guess I... Yeah, right. Discovery. Yep. Uh, I expect to be disappointed in it, but excited for season two. That is my current reaction. I mean, I've already been disappointed, so I expect it'll be fine. It'll be fine. and then we'll Yeah, it'll be fine. I, en- I enjoy Discovery. I'm ready for them to get to the next season. I'm really yeah. excited to read the Discovery books. <laughs> I sure am. I, I opened it up because we got it, uh, and the first page is like... <laughs> It's already on its bullshit, like, immediately. So Okay, good, good. Uh, very excited for that. But yes, no, we're here to do our regular episodes. It's been seven years. It has been about a month. Yeah, but it feels so much longer. It's actually been less than a month. Okay. Because of so, how January worked. Uh, let's talk about what we are watching today and reading yes. today. What, are we, what is on, on the plate? So we're watching the original series episodes The Devil in the Dark and Amok Time. And we are reading The Return by William Shatner and Judith Garfield Reeve Stevens. And that is the second of the Shatnerverse first trilogy. Uh, You do not need to know anything past watching Generations and knowing a bit of TOS and TNG to enjoy this. So feel free to go in, you know, look... Nothing can spoil you for Generations. It's just a bad film. So, you know, if you haven't seen Generations, don't worry about it. Yes, we will talk about Generations in this, but it's also just a bad movie. Yes, but the book is very good. So anyway, um, before we get to that, because this will probably be a while, uh, let's announce what we're doing next month. What are we doing next month? Next month, we are watching two more original series episodes. Yes. We are watching Errand of Mercy which is the original series season one, episode 27. It is the first appearance of the Klingons. Oh, shit. (laughs) And we're also watching the Enterprise Incident, which is season three, episode four, which I I know is a Romulan episode. It has a Lady Romulan on it. That's all I know. Hell yes. Yes. Uh, Next month, uh, we are reading the third episode William Shatner, Shatnerverse novel, the last of this trilogy. We will then leave the Shatnerverse for a while. It is called Avenger. It sure is. Yes. For reasons that will become clear when we, you know, talk about it and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's what we've got going on. Um, let's just get going. We probably have a lot to talk about here. <laughs> yes, no. No bullshit in this episode. We are sticking straight on it because there's a lot to get through. It's going to be a good time. So let's let's get into the episodes. Space, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission, 
to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. This month is The Devil in the Dark. This is Season 1, Episode 26 of the original series. It aired the 9th of March, 1967. It was written by Gene L. Kuhn. It was directed by Joseph Pevney. It takes place, of course, in the year 2267. On Janus-6, there is a mining outpost. In fact, there is a huge mining installation that burrows deep into the ground to get... Uh, what is the thing they're getting? Uh, Pergeum. 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 Pergeum, yes. and it also has a bunch of everything you could want. Rare earth minerals. It's a treasure trove. It is described as a treasure trove. Uh, unfortunately, there's a weird monster that is, like, in the tunnels of this place and is killing the miners. Uh, and by killing, I mean burning them to a crisp. So the Enterprise shows up to fix this uh, and answer the distress call. And they discover that in actuality, the miners are not being burned. They're being dissolved by some weird corrosive acid. And they decide to go and investigate what this creature is. Uh, as it's sabotaging machinery and bringing Pergeum to a halt. Uh, multiple planets rely on this Pergeum. It apparently fuels reactors. I don't know. We'll talk about it. Uh Anyway, the one person has seen it. They say he says it's a weird shaggy monster and he shot it with a phaser and it had no effect, but he only had phaser one. The Enterprise has phaser two, which are the big ones, and they break those out and go hunting for this thing. Uh, there they find a weird, strange, blobby creature called well we know we don't know what it's called yet, but uh, you probably know this is a famous episode. They fire at it, a piece falls off. It's gross. Uh, the thing scurries off into the tunnels. They investigate and decide that it is a silicon-based life form, which probably shouldn't exist, but I guess it does because they shot it and got a piece of it. Uh, they all split up into the tunnels to find this creature, and Spock and Kirk, of course, because they are heroes, find the creature. And they decide the only way to like re uh, understand what's going on is for Spock to mind meld with it, which Spock does and goes and approaches the creature and shouts pain because the creature's been injured and communicates with it and says that it's a Horda and it's lived here forever. And the problem is the miners broke into the cavern where it's like millions of eggs were uh, because it's the last of its race because all the race dies off and one Horda ushers in a new age with eggs. And um, the, the miners interrupt the eggs. And so the Horda went after the miners and uh, McCoy beams down and he puts a literal cement on the uh, injury of the Horda. And that's enough to heal it because it's just a big rock monster. And they make a compromise where the miners will leave the Horda and its eggs alone. And the Horda will help mine tunnels for the miners to make them more efficient in getting the Pergeum and all the other things on this planet. Everyone's happy. There's a profit to be made. And Kirk and Spock say, oh, we did it. And they beam away. And the day is saved. Yes, they do. They do. That's the episode. That is the episode. It's kind of wild how much this is just like a Star Trek episode that is repeated infinite times. Um, like, this is... Like, 
the people on the planet come across a thing that it turns out they're hurting, but then it, they reach a mutual understanding is like 90% of Star Trek episodes. Yes, it is one of the prototypical Star Trek episodes. Uh, so on that sense, like it was less impressive to me because there wasn't really any twist to it because it's obviously just one of these because it was early enough where that was like, like this was important. But also this episode rules. I love it this episode. Rule. It is good. It is good. <laughs> This is, uh, like, I like when Star Trek is just quintessentially Star Trek. There is a monster. The miners want to kill it because they're awful miners. The Star Trek crew beam in and say, no, 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 you can't do that. We have to talk to it and understand it. And they do. And they reach a compromise and a detente. And the monster is not killed. And everyone is saved and happy. And through cooperation and communication, everyone is better off than they were before. And they all make a lot of money. Wait, hang on. (laughs) (laughs) What more can you aspire to in, like, reaching this communication uh, with the weird rock monster? Exactly. Yeah. Yes, they also make a lot of money. So (laughs) let's talk. So, okay. Star Trek is weird because they made up most of this as they went along, right? Like, we'll talk about this a lot when we get to the next episode where all sorts of weird shit's made up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it sure is. But, like... Philosophically, Star Trek is thought of as this very complete thing from the start and this vision of a future. That's not true, even a little bit, when you like start to analyze it at all. Like it's a bunch of stories written by a bunch of different sci-fi writers held together by string, which was then like thirty years, twenty years later, uh, picked over and reinterpreted into a new, uh, like vision of what the future is yes. which is why the, the 24th century episodes like the t- early tng is so much more utopian than original star trek ever was and everyone's like oh we had to introduce conflict into the universe but it, it was there before it wasn't <laughs> everyone's arguing with each other all the time in the original star trek it wasn't a conflict-free show until tng started Yes, which includes the fact that Picard, or not Picard, uh, Kirk saves the day by convincing the miners that if they work with Horta, they will make so much goddamn money, and that's just okay, and nobody we, nobody bats an eyelash. We've talked about how, like, a lot of TOS, because of its, like, Western influences, feels like, oh, here's a bunch of miners on a rock trying to make a profit, and it just, life always sucks for them, and that's completely out of step with the cultural reputation of what star trek says about the future but it's not like it's in the show it's a lot of what the show's about there's multiple episodes of just that all the time yep and in this episode it is just sweaty men in jumpsuits clearly about to be murdered every oh, scene so about to be murdered i guess it's these guys have it worse than the guy who couldn't you know clean his pants yeah, no, he just had to give his pans like a sand scouring. These guys, 50 of them have been melted into the rock. <laughs> and the episode begins with a hilarious scene where they send someone to, like, has, someone has to guard. And he's like, hey, 50, 49 people have died doing this exact job. What if I didn't do this? What if someone else did this? What if we went away? What if anything else? I don't think there's anything to be gained here. And he's like... The Enterprise is on its way. It'll be four hours. You'll be fine. Nothing's going to go wrong. And then he's like, please, please. And he's like, no, I promise you. Walks out the door. He is dead within 10 seconds. <laughs> yep. I also like this implication that the Federation are just like the galactic parents you call when you have a problem. That is checks out with not only every other episode of TOS, but also the Discovery book that we read. Yeah, but usually it's when the Federation show up, you're like, oh shit, we didn't want them meddling. But then they, they this one, they specifically call for the Federation, they get the Enterprise, and then still when the Enterprise shows up, they're like, oh, this is not really what we asked for. 
Well, in other episodes, uh, in other versions of this episode, you would have the thing about the eggs be like slightly more deliberate and like the miners would have been hiding something from the federation like that's this plot usually but they're not they're just stupid (laughs) they just don't know anything um well to be fair as far as all science is concerned silicon-based life forms can't exist right so oh sure i'm I'm not saying that like because even mccoy's like when spock posits what this is he's like that's impossible don't be stupid spock Mm mm-hmm to the point just, where, to the point where the, he derails Spock figuring out what's going on because Spock feels so like chagrined by McCoy's sarcasm that he refuses to postulate openly to the captain. I love the fact that this happens a lot in TOS, where Spock is basically the machine through which the logic of the story is always processed. Like he knows exactly what's going on, and will just say, "Well, I speculate that it's this," and it's always exactly that. Um, mm. And the way this is meters out is he'll be like, well, I can't be sure of anything more at this time. And then two scenes later, even though there's no real new information, he'll be like, well, now I can tell you more of my speculation. <laughs> yep. Uh, and in this one, because they didn't have the boardroom scene that's in all of TNG, more people died because Spock didn't postulate the thing that would have solved the problem yep. instantly. <laughs> yes. Yes. No. Oh, man, the in- the in- the invention of the boardroom scene being like scene five in every single episode really saved a lot of lives yes it really does uh so yeah they find the horda the horda is great it is gross and ridiculous dumb uh like pulsing rug basically that someone's underneath yes I love it. I love it so much. I hate it's like weird injury that just looks like a like a <laughs> fake cartoon cavity or something. I hate it. It's so gross. Uh, it's it's not the best. Uh, it it just squicks me out. Mm-hmm. And they talk a lot about Phaser One and Phaser Two in this episode, which I love. Oh, you mean stun and kill? <laughs> no, they. I mean the little tiny Phaser and the big handheld pistol Phaser. Mm-hmm. It's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Is that a thing that's held? Is that a, is Phaser One and Phaser Two a thing that has like stayed through? This is the only what? thing. That, this is the only episode that mentions it. But so even so, TO, TOS and TNG all have, both have the same thing. There's the Phaser Type One, which is the really tiny, like, like almost like a credit card sized one or like a yeah. remote control. Then there's Phaser Two, which and this is like the gun. That's the one they haven't discovered. Basically, the same thing. Yes. And then in TNG, it's like the weird curved Count Dooku handle gun, right? Yeah, that's, that's what I think when I think of a Phaser. I think of the TO, uh, the TNG like curved thing. Yeah, that's Phaser Two, and then Phaser Type Three is the rifles, which they only have in uh, the uh, like where no man has gone before, or whatever in TOS, and then in TNG. You know, you've seen a bunch of Phaser rifles in TNG and DS Nine and stuff. I don't remember them in TNG. Uh, I think, I think they're in, the in one. Or, I think they're maybe in one episode, but yeah, mostly they're in the movies. But there's a ton of them in those movies. Because <laughs> I just remember everyone like locking and loading in First Contact. Uh, I just before we recorded this, watched Insurrection, in which Data says lock and load, and it's maybe the he worst line say, in the movie. He does say lock and load. Yes. Doesn't he say like I think I speak for all of us when I, like he does that moment? He's like he he's like he's like the the radiation is making everyone rebellious. I'm the only person who can be uh, objective about the situation. And then Crusher is like, well, what do you think, Data? And he's like, saddle up. And then he grabs a gun, lock and load. And then it cuts, and it's the worst. (laughs) Maybe Star Trek was a mistake. (laughs) Maybe we burn this whole thing down. Mm, I don't know. So Spock can mind meld with this thing without touching it, which is new. Okay, so mind melding is just everywhere all the time anytime there's a vulcan on anything there has to be a mind meld because it's actually the greatest like 
convenience to plot writing of ever. So so one thing I um I think it was in the mission log episode, they talked about how they wrote in the line about it being dangerous for him to mind meld and like psychically damaging because they realized that if they didn't write that in, he'd just use a mind meld every episode to save the day. He really would. Yes. <laughs> because especially with so much of Star Trek being about like competing um like factions with different worldviews and intentions needing to come to a common understanding they literally have a magic tool that does that to people and it's in one of the main characters yes <laughs> and, it's like, a bit Disco- of a problem discovery has a bunch of that like sarak is mind mounted with about seven people last week it's it's a lot yep uh so yeah that's why it's when you have a Vulcan on board, you're going to mind meld a lot because the plot demands it. I thought there was less mind melding in the original series. There is clearly a lot. Yep. Uh, and then uh, you have one of... Both these episodes have really great comedic endings. This yes. one, Spock is like, oh, the Horda is a very logical mind. It's much better than being around humans. <laughs> and, and and then the Horda's like... He's like, oh, the Horda actually said uh, the, they hate... They, they find humans revolting, but they could learn to understand them. Uh, because, no. like... Oh, I wonder what the Horda had to say about your ears, though. <laughs> Which is its just so insanely racist. Like, I can't believe that's just the running gag. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, like, I know it, and I know it's just a weird thing about 60 Star Trek, but you think about it in the context of the world they're building, it breaks everything instantly. <laughs> yes. What if everyone pointed to Worf's ridges every episode and yeah, like, what made if? a comment about them? Yeah. Oh, God. Can you even imagine God? Um, and then... It, and then <laughs> Uh, Spock is like, actually, the Horde has said that they are the most attractive feature of the humanoids. I did not have the heart to tell them. <laughs> yeah. But then Kirk is like, oh, very prideful, Spock. You're becoming more and more human all the time. And he's like, I have no, I don't know why I'm standing here being insulted and walks away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, interesting notes on this episode. Uh, William Shatner's father died during the filming of this episode. Uh, and he found out and continued shooting. They cut a day out of the schedule. So around the time that, uh, Kurt or Spock is mind melding with the Horda, there's a bunch of shots of an extra stand in for Shatner, uh, mm-hmm. when they do reverse shots, but otherwise, uh, you know, they got it done in time. And because of that, Shatner for a long time claimed this was his favorite episode. And then when he got old, he changed it to, uh, um, City on the Edge of Forever. Cause of course he did. Of course he did. Fucking yes. <laughs> Shatner. Yes. God damn it, Shatner. When Shatner uh, bought into his own bullshit, he changed his mind. Oh, weird. Weird that he would do that. That's not like him at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, other note is the editing in this episode is really incredible. Yes. Uh, I, I, so I just noticed this as part of the as part of the um watching it. There's a bunch of match shots, uh, match cuts, where a character will say something and then the next line will feel like it's just the next line of the conversation. But yes. you will realize, wait, this is a different room. We're in a, we are in a new room discussing the situation later. Uh, yep. And there's a bunch of match cuts. And then um, I was added on Twitter some context about this. This episode was added, uh, added, fuck, I, man, edited by uh, Fabian Torchman. Tor- Torchman? I think that's how you pronounce it. Okay. Uh, which uh, who has edited a bunch of episodes, like twenty-two episodes, come some we've watched, uh, including like Arena, um, and here's here's the quote from Memory Alpha: According to Robert Justman, Torchman was the most difficult of the original series film editors. Practicing advanced film theory, quote, he thought of editing as an art form of its own and always came up with flashy experimental cuts. And Justman has to convince him to use simple classic methods of editing. It was a common sight of Torchman stomping on film in the editing room, shouting "Murder, murder, murder!" Brackets, shit, shit, shit. <laughs> 
Uh, no one has ever said words in French more Britishly than you just did. So oh, mad, 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 mad. Yeah, I know. Yes. Uh, I, I, yeah, I know. Look, <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> I can't help it, right? Uh, no. Second note, which is also for the next one, is this was not on purpose. But yeah. if we look on okay. the other... did, did you also? <laughs> yes, I was about to note this when we got to okay. the second episode. Okay. Good. Um, this was not on purpose, but Anthony Rapp claims that Devil in the Dark is one of his two favorite Star Trek episodes, the other being a muck time. Yeah, which this was definitely not on discuss. purpose, but I'm very delighted because Anthony Rapp is great. So, Oh, uh, yes. No, we both love Anthony Rapp. Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting to me because this episode is clearly filmed on like a single set. They just shoot in every different possible angle. <laughs> just, a, uh, just a couple of tunnels. Yeah, so the editing really, like, breaks up the sense of space where, like, it feels really expansive and claustrophobic and good. Like, they get a lot of mileage out of this weird tunnel set they have going on. No, they sure do. It is it is good. Yeah. Uh, but also, yeah, it is the editing in this is wild. Uh, not as wild as some of the directorial choices next episode. But both no. of these episodes are, like, weirdly pop art in a way I think of, like, Batman, the Adam West series being um yes. especially when we get to a muck time we'll talk oh, about that especially <laughs> the you made a video of a scene that is just straight out of batman basically it's a lot <laughs> um oh, i was losing it that said so much i guess it's time to talk about it yeah so yeah let's uh let's switch gears and we will talk about a muck time jackson tell us about it so uh a muck time uh is the second episode uh, no the first episode of season two uh, it aired 15th of September 1967. It was written by Theodore Sturgeon uh, and directed by Joseph Pevney. Joseph Pevney. Uh, always can't talk. Uh, and uh, McCoy brings Kirk to Spock saying, "This Spock's got out of control. He's not acting like himself. And Kirk's like, he's fine. What are, what are you talking about? It's Spock. He's fine. Uh, this is interrupted by Spock literally throwing his food out into the corridor and being like, don't bring me this woman. <laughs> Uh, to chapel. Uh, it's, it's yeah specifically soup chapel gave him or is going to give him and when she's about to bring it in mccoy is like oh there's no dissuading you you're still trying getting on that horse even though it kicks you off every time uh with uh, an yeah. undercurrent of chapel being really hot for spock which i understand spock's attractive i don't disagree <laughs> with a double undercurrent of it being Miguel barrett roddenberry who is doing this to every character for the end of time <laughs> <laughs> i guess that's true <laughs> Uh, anyway, Spock's acting weird and is like, I need to go to Vulcan. I need to take me to Vulcan. And Kirk's like, why? And Spock's like, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. So he's like, okay, I guess I will take it to Vulcan. I'll take your word for it, but I'd really rather you tell me. Uh, so they head towards Vulcan, but then a priority message comes in and like, you have to go back to uh, Altair 4. They're far? Altair 6. six. Yep. Altair 6. Because the, um, uh, the, they have to be in attendance for the president's inauguration. Yes, it is a dumb diplomatic ceremony that literally exists to be like a MacGuffin to give this episode some stakes um and they're like oh you have to go there because you, you, it's gonna happen earlier so you have you can't you can't uh, take leave on Vulcan and Kirk's like worth noting the person who keeps pestering Kirk about going to this thing is Ensign Chekhov who is new to this episode yes there's so many scenes of Chekhov and Sulu just like sitting at the helm like uh, I don't know what's yeah. going on Chekhov was added in season two to be uh, to appeal to like a younger demographic because he's in his 20s and everyone is not everyone else is old yep he's so young he's such a baby yep um mm, sorry uh and 
this goes on back and forth. They're like, oh, I need to go to Vulcan. I need, and they're like, oh, I need to go to Altair. And then Spock changes the um, change of the course of the Enterprise himself, offering the orders. And then Kirk changes them back. And he's like, Spock, what is going on? What are you doing? And Spock's like, okay, I might be doing these things, but I can't remember anything. I am not in a good way. You have to lock me up. Uh, Kirk instead orders him to Six Bay, uh, Six Bay, where uh, Leonard McCoy is like, hey, what the fuck is going on? I need to examine you. We need to figure out what's going on. Spock is not happy about this. Eventually, Kirk finally talks to Spock in quarters being like, look, what is going on? And Spock is like, okay, I will tell you, but you can't tell anyone. This has to be classified. You can't tell anyone else. Uh, uh, you skip the part where McCoy's results are like, if we don't get Spock to Vulcan within right, seven yes. days to fix whatever is going to happen, he's going to die. Because McCoy doesn't know what's wrong with him. Yes, because Spock he will does say. Know, he does know he will die in eight days. Yeah. Uh, so he goes uh, goes to Spock's quarters and asks him and Spock explains oh it's to do with biology uh, uh, which means it's the Ponfar it's the Ponfar it's the Ponfar he needs to go look and... people might not know what the Ponfar is you so the Ponfar probably... is that every seven years is it? Um, or is so that, it's I weird because this episode this episode describes it as something much else than is in like Search for Spock or Enterprise huh yeah right because I just assume right yes so here they say that basically the Ponfar is that eventually time catches up with the Vulcans uh, in terms of like they are very logical uh, they do not get involved with anything so shameful as sex uh, but eventually uh, the Ponfar catches up with them and they are overcome with their desires and must return to Vulcan and immediately like marry and mate yes uh, so Kirk hearing this is like okay fine we're going back to Vulcan we are going to disobey our orders um like he asks the admiral, and the admiral is like, "No, because you won't tell me why." So clearly, you have to go to this thing that I ordered you to do. Also, uh, uh, when they're talking about biology, Kirk is like, "Oh, like the birds and the bees," and Spock is like, "Captain, the birds and the bees are not Vulcans and would not survive <laughs> if they were Vulcans." But then he's like, "It's more like the salmon." <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, so they head to Vulcan, uh, and they have to go meet up with T'Pring, who is. According to Spock, his wife. And then Kirk and McCoy are like, wait, hang on. And then he's like, well, not technically my wife yet, but it is more than being betrothed to me. We have had a ceremony. We touched each other at seven years old. And we did a mini mind meld such that we would be drawn to each other uh, when we return for the Ponfar. Uh, and he allows uh, McCoy and Kirk to come with him. Uh, because he can take his friends to the ceremony. Because although he's like, no one can know about this, he actually loves uh, Kirk and McCoy more than he loves anything on Earth or in space, I guess would be more accurate. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, so they go to the ceremony, which is taking place on like a huge rock uh, with two bridges uh, approaching it that is just in the air on like a big mountain. And they just go there. And it's like a circle... Um, so it is worth mentioning that this entire like giant pullout shot is added in the remaster. Okay, so what was it originally? Because I was like, this there was nothing. Like... There was just there was just a shot of the set. Okay, because I was confused because I thought that wow, they this really looks like Vulcan. I guess I thought that came in the movies, like the design of Vulcan. Yeah, like there, there's the big set, obviously, but there's no establishing shot past the area where the rest of this episode takes place. Okay, that makes a lot of sense because I was yes. confused by how like accurate to future Vulcan like designs this whole thing was. Yes. Um. All right. Anyway, so they go there. Uh, and Spock's ancestral grounds, his family's Spock's owned for thousands of years. 
Yep. Uh, and he is going to marry to Pring. And also uh, to Powers there, who is yes. the only person ever to turn down a seat in the Federation Council. Uh, like super respected here to officiate the wedding. Um, she is also but, a German lady. <laughs> she is insanely German. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then... As the ceremony begins, to Pring invokes the Califi, uh, which is that Spock has to fight for her. And obviously, she chooses a challenger, and that challenger is Kirk. Uh, this does not go well. Everyone's like, oh, you shouldn't do this. You you, you don't have to do this. This isn't binding. Uh, because, like, you shouldn't do this. This is stupid. Uh, even Ston, who is, like, the, uh, the person she's actually boning, um, is like, you said that I would fight Spock. Um, all of this is pointless because they're going to have a fight to the death that is going to happen the, the plot has begun so they begin the fight um, and it goes badly for Kirk because he's in Vulcan and the air is thin and it's super hot and it's very bad uh, McCoy stops the fight and is like hey this is bad for Kirk uh, he doesn't even have a fighting chance. I must inject him with a compound to compensate for the atmosphere. A triox compound. A triox compound, yes. He injects Kirk. The fight continues, but Spock overpowers him and he collapses. Uh, and McCoy, very not suspiciously, goes over to him and goes, Oh yeah, he's dead. He's dead. Beam out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is incredible that Spock can't figure out what's going on. Like... It- ridiculous so this is one of those things with tos that happens a lot where this stuff has become such a part of the cultural fabric that i feel like it probably didn't play as ridiculous when it aired but it definitely does now because everyone knows what this means i mean i don't know i feel like it is like these are probably the beginning of a lot of these tropes for a lot of people right like that is probably true but i feel like if you are getting into a fight and then a character has to not die like you don't need a trope to figure out like what the mccoy would do in that scenario yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I could be wrong. I don't actually. It's know. really hard. Like I don't know. It's, it's it's such a weird thing. I always am hesitant to just like automatically cast that sort of like. It's not really a negative, but those kind of dispersions towards a show of this vintage, because who knows where these things came from, considering how ubiquitous this is, especially like an episode like this, which is one of the most famous Star Trek episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That, that, that is fair. I wouldn't say that like dispersions, because like I, this episode is ridiculous, and I love it for that. Yes. Uh, but yes, I get what you mean. Anyway, finishing up the summary, uh, McCoy and Dead Kirk beam out leaving Spock behind to talk to T'Pring, being like, why did you make me fight my captain to the death? Why did you do this to me? And T'Pring's like, I have owned you so hard. So her answer is actually really good. Her answer is, Mr. Spock, this is clearly the most logical choice. I didn't want to be married to you. You're like famous and I don't want to be the wife of a famous guy. So either you lost and Kirk wouldn't have me and thus me and Stone would be together. You would win or go off into space and then me and Stone could just continue our illicit affair. Uh, or, uh, you would, what was it? You would refuse, well, Kirk would refuse or something. And then yeah, everything Kirk would be nulled. Yeah. Kirk would win and he would not accept him. Yes. Uh, and Spock either, would win and he'd be gone. Yes. And then there was a third option. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. Anyway, uh, uh, she outlays this and Spock stops and is like, your logic is absolutely flawless. I've never seen such a display insulting her, of course, because Spock is great and knows the Vulcans are bullshit, but she does not have the capacity to understand that and says, I could not think of any higher compliment from you. <laughs> Yeah, and then he turns to Stone and he's like, after a time, you may find that having is not so pleasing a thing as wanting. And I'm like, man, Spock. And then he goes to T'Pau and they do the Vulcan salute. And this is the episode that introduces the Vulcan salute. 
And she tells him to live long and prosper, which is the first time that's ever been said. And Spock has the absolute best and saddest reply. I shall do neither. I have killed my captain and my friend. And then beams out. And it's amazing. (laughs) Yep. No, he sure does. Uh, Also, he is not. So he goes back to the Enterprise. We'll just just do it in summary. He goes back to the Enterprise and he's like, talking to McCoy. Uh, this is why I think this is this is um, that people would have known what McCoy is doing because this scene is played as yes, Spock. That's fair. Spock is talking to McCoy and everyone's McCoy's hat fine. And everyone's like, oh, this all worked out. And Spock's like, oh, you must take me to back to the base immediately. I can't believe that what I have done. Uh, I, I I no longer even have these Ponfar desires. Er, like killing Kirk has taken everything from me, and I must resign my commission and die uh, as quickly as I can. Uh, and while this is happening, obviously Kirk walks out from behind him and goes like, "Oh, you want to bet? You better check with me first. At which point, yes. Spock turns around and goes, "Jim!" and like with grins. a big smile, yes. And then everyone's looking at him, and then he looks at them and goes, uh, 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 "Yes, hello. Uh, I was simply logically saying that it is good that Starfleet did not lose such a proficient captain." Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, "Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever, Spock." Well, Kirk lets him keep his dignity by going, yes, yes, quite logical, Mr. Spock. And as they walk away, McCoy's like, in a pig's eye. (laughs) (laughs) He sure does say that. Yes. (laughs) What a ridiculous episode. Uh, But it was, it was good fun. So yes, that is, that is a mock time. He is now cured of his, of his Ponfar edges. I don't know why, but he is. Because the, it's like a, so the whole thing is that it's like, a fucking like you don't you don't give into emotions, but eventually that builds up, and you have to give in by either fucking or murdering. That's the only answer. And I so he either it. has to get married and like consummate that, or he has to kill someone, and then the bloodlust will go away. Because it's implied that like the the bloodlust is such where like it, it is not a thing. Well, obviously it's going to kill him, but he is like not in his right mind. But then also his like. Whether or not he gets the bloodlust appropriately for a Vulcan is called into question by the Vulcans who are like, you're half human. Maybe you just don't have Ponfar the way the rest of us do. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and then he his eyes roll back in his head. And clearly he does. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's interesting because like this de- deviates a lot with how like through it being just kind of a running joke through time and culture, right? Like Ponfar as a concept and yes. how it comes back in uh, the movies and Enterprise and everything. Like this is not in line with future interpretations of Ponfar, which is literally just, I need to fuck every few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is way more specific and like, he's just going completely insane. And then he has a fight and he's like, I'm fine now. Everything's fine. Yep. Um, well, in, except for the fact that he's really sad, which is, I love Spock at the end of this episode. It's so good. I shall do neither. Yes. <laughs> I have killed my captain and my friend. Yeah. Uh, Spock's the best. Yes, he is. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, no. So this episode, obviously Spock was a fan favorite from the beginning. And so they like immediately NBC was like, please make an episode about Spock. Let us see his planet. Teach us about Vulcans. And it took him until season two to actually get it done. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. It really did, because yep. I did not realize this was the first time you saw a single other Vulcan. Yep. Yep, and the Vulcan salute and all the stuff about Vulcan all shows up all at once here. Yeah, you know, like the bells, like the bells. <laughs> so everything on Vulcan is ridiculous. So they reuse <laughs> a bunch of the props from uh, Balance of Terror, like the the guys with the bells are wearing helmets that the Romulans had in Balance of Terror. 
Um, mm-hmm. Stawn himself is like the second of the Romulan commander in Bounce of Terror. Yep, I recognized a lot of the like yes. props and stuff, and I was like, uh, and apparently, apparently, he was in consideration to replace Leonard Nimoy if he didn't come back during contract negotiations between season one and two. Like as Spock or as a new Vulcan? Yes, as Spock. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> of the hubris. Yes, <laughs> my word. Yep. Uh, and th- because of that, this episode is full of like a bunch of heady '60s bullshit. Like the amount of Dutch angles and veering like shots of weird stuff as like Spock is eyes rolled up in his head as he's in his bloodlust, like trembling in a corner, and then these guys are shaking these wind chimes, and it's ridiculous. It's so much. It's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, and in that is a new theme, which is like the battle theme, which has become one of the most famous Star Trek pieces of music, mm-hmm. uh, regularly uh, parodied in other media or just used outright. It's in, I know it's in Cable Guy, which is the one I always think of, where they replicate the fight between Kirk and Spock basically exactly. Um and uh, apparently the composer uh, realized that he had made something that had endured when he started getting royalty checks from The Simpsons for using this theme. <laughs> so That's pretty good. Yep. Uh, yeah, this is, this is a big deal episode, which is great because the episode itself is kind of constantly ridiculous. Yeah, like this is goofy Star Trek. It is ridiculous Star Trek that like, it's good because it's ridiculous, but it's not like serious science fiction. Yes, no, it's really weird because the Vulcans, they spend so much time building up the Vulcans as like, oh, they are like something humans should aspire to, these bastions of logic, their (laughs) their minds are computers. And you go to Vulcan and it's a bunch of like mysticism and robes crystal bullshit going on. I don't understand it at all. Yeah, I guess hearing about the Vulcans, like, I know, I, because... Because Star Trek is just a thing that has existed for my entire life and I have watched it for so long, there are things I don't question. Like, the Vulcans mm-hmm. come from the from Vulcan where everything is, like, hot and weird and mysticism. That's just the Vulcans. That's just what they do. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Like, the rest of the lore has worked with this and, like, justified it and made everything as good as it can be. But when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But it's yeah, pretty sure. good. Yeah. This episode's great, though. What a good, goofy time. There's a lot of fun stuff here. Every single time to powers like, uh, uh she has initiated yes. the Katow. <laughs> There's also a lot it. of Kirk and McCoy being, like, very good-naturedly confused by the whole thing. <laughs> yes! I like that, that like, this is non-binding. This You don't have to do any of this. It's fine. We will respect you. You're not binded by Vulcan laws. Until suddenly they are, and they're like, actually, this is the death fight, and you can't back out. Goodbye. Well, once Kirk agrees, he can't back out. <laughs> sure, but they never say it's a death fight before he agrees. Well, that yes, that's true. It is, like, a hilariously conspicuous uh, thing to leave out when you're explaining yes. the rules of this whole situation. Yes. <laughs> Also, Kirk gets that very infamous slash right across his nipples. He sure does. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very a silly it, thing. It has only got funnier in time. Yes. As, like, bad, horny designs have propagated through just the world. Yep. It's pretty good. It's a good image. Yeah. No, for sure. These, this is these a, are two good great. episodes. These are two yeah. good episodes. This is a good show. 
So, again, next month, we are going to be watching Errand of Mercy, which is season one, episode 27. You know what? Episodes are weird. I don't know. This probably is not what Netflix has them in. Uh, Amok Time is listed on Memory Alpha as season or episode five of season two, which is clearly wrong. Even though it says season premiere, I don't understand anything. I mean, it and, was the first that aired. I assume aired is one, mm-hmm. and uh, production would have been five. Yeah. And The Enterprise Incident, season three, episode four. Uh, so please look forward to those, and we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with the book, The Return. Oh, God, we sure will, won't we? Yes. book we are reading this month is called the return a novel by william shatner very small font and in brackets uh, with judith and garfield reed stevens yes <laughs> the cover is kirk and picard like half of their faces each over a planet with uh beams like beams of light shooting out of it uh and the ret- it's, it's a whole thing kirk is coming back this was Published first of April, nineteen ninety-six. It is an April Fool's joke, <laughs> and it deals uh, with what happens to James T. Kirk after Star Trek Generations. Yes, we are in twenty-three seventy-one. Twenty-three seventy-one. Viridian Three. Maybe you've heard of it. This is like weeks or days after Generations. I don't know how long the operation. They said. They said. Like. I think they said it was about three weeks. Three weeks. Yes, it is. Yes. The situation is Generations has happened, and if you know that movie, uh, the Enterprise D crashes because Lurus and Beta destroy it. Um, Kirk is dead. Kirk is dead. Kirk. So yes, Kirk's dead in a grave on uh, on Viridian Three. Uh, the Enterprise is there, and they are doing a huge cleanup operation because the planet Viridian Four has a civilization on it, which we still don't see. We have no idea who they are, but through the obligation um, to the Prime Directive, they must remove all trace of the Enterprise so that when 
uh, Rudy and Four get space travel, but not warp technology. They visit this planet and don't see traces of. They don't find the saucer section there because yes. that'd go so, really badly. Who is on Verdian Three that we were introduced to at the end of the last book? At the end of the last book, uh, we have two people on Verdian Three. Three, yeah. Th- three. Who's the third? Yes. Well, well, I guess technically three, <laughs> unless you mean four. But no, I mean Deanna Troy is there. I guess okay, Troy is there. So you have Riker and Troy who are there doing the thing, uh, doing the cleanup mission. And then you have Spock standing over Kirk's grave as uh, as he's like, oh. I've, I miss you, friend. You are gone, but you know maybe you're not gone. As at the conclusion cliffhanger of the final, uh, the final chapter of the last book, suddenly there is a beam out from Kirk's grave, and the the grave falls in, and it is empty. Captain Kirk's remains have been teleported away, have been transported from here, and that is where we pick up. That is where this begins. So yes. how does the return open? What are you- so that all happens. Part of that is them noticing that there is a battle back at the like the excavation site of the Enterprise saucer. And so Riker beams into that area, which is described as literally beaming into hell, which I don't think is true because it's raining and I'm pretty sure it doesn't rain in hell. But it is under attack and there's a big mess and all of the excavation equipment's being shot at from someone in orbit and their ship has been destroyed that was like above the planet helping them do the excavation. And Riker does heroics and shoots some torpedoes to stop the attack and the attack stops and there's only the rain left. And then he's like, no, wait a second. That wouldn't have stopped them. It was only two torpedoes from a shuttle. They must have gotten what they came for. And what they came for is Kirk's body, which they have beamed out. Everyone is left wondering what's going on as they wait for someone to notice that there's no ship around Verdian 3 and come and get them. Uh, So we'll get back to them in a second. Meanwhile. Meanwhile. Kirk's body. (laughs) What happened to it? It has been abducted by a Romulan named Salatrell. She has a famous grandfather. Without a name, unfortunately. (laughs) But he is. He is the Romulan commander from Balance of Terror. And her whole family has been disgraced since the Butcher of Icarus IV killed the Romulan ship and uh, disgraced her entire family. And she has to get revenge on the one man who did that, James T. Kirk. Which means that she needs Kirk alive so she can revenge herself upon him. Which is a really (laughs) dumb plan to begin with, but whatever. You can't revenge yourself upon someone who is already dead. The way in which she decides to bring Kirk back to life is to ally herself with someone who has vast knowledges of technology that might allow you to somehow bring someone back to life. And that is the Borg. Yes, the Romulans are working with the Borg, but not all the Romulans, because the Romulans aren't so stupid to suddenly ally with the Borg, but like some Romulan dissidents who are like loyal to the Empire, but not actually because they're going to go work with the Borg to further their aims. Oh, you mean Romulans. I mean Romulans. <laughs> yes. Because you know, that, you know, that society famous for being like really well united and not in any way duplicitous. <laughs> yes. Some of them mutinied and joined the Borg, which, look, if you already don't like to follow orders, I feel like joining the Borg's a bad idea. <laughs> I mean, there are no orders. You are one with the collective. It's By yes. all accounts, becoming a Borg is great. Anyway, the Borg have some weird technology that they don't even seem to really understand, because why would they need to bring anyone back to life? But it's made expressly for the purpose of bringing someone back to life. So they, Kirk, they throw Kirk in it, and Kirk emerges, like, angry and insane, but he's alive, basically. 
Yes. Uh, I want to stop just while I remember here to say that being brought back to life by the Borg as a concept for this novel began when Shatner pitched it to the film team. Yes. He, yes. This is an idea Kirk had or William Shatner had during the filming of Star Trek Generations when he found out that his character was dying. And he immediately got to work bringing him back. And yes. then they were like, absolutely not. And that still would not deter him. No. <laughs> He'll make it happen. He'll make it happen. Um, so he has been brought back, but he has a Borg implant in his brain that allows them to like measure his like mental capacity and his, whether or not he's lying and stuff. And he's also full of Borg nanites and they are reprogramming him through brainwashing in a holodeck to believe that he is like one freedom fighter who betrayed the Federation to help the poor Romulans who continue to be attacked by one monster of the Federation, Jean-Luc Picard. And Salatrell's plan is to brainwash Kirk so he will go out and kill Jean-Luc Picard and the Starfleet will be torn apart. Uh, and Locutus, who the Borg are worried about, will be killed and Salatrell will get her revenge as Starfleet's greatest captains murder each other. Yes. <laughs> this, this, so, Salatrell's an idiot. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, but in her mind, and she says this can only end one way. <laughs> yes. She's right about that. Um, but in her mind, the outcome of this is going to be, so Kirk kills Picard, thus allowing the Borg to attack the Federation. This sparks a war that wipes almost both of them out, leaving the Romulans, uh, to pick up the pieces and attack the Borg and Federation remnants and become... Uh, the like dominant power in the Alpha Quadrant. That is also also it like besmirch it like ruins Kirk's reputation for all of history. Yes. Also, Kirk is known entirely as uh, th- someone the the man who killed the Federation. Yes. Um, because also he will die just because the Nanites will kill him. Yeah. Uh, he's only given a week. Yeah. Um, and and. This is going to be the Romulan Empire's path to ultimate superiority. In no way could this blow up in her face. Yes. Not at all. Meanwhile, Jean-Luc Picard, dealing with the devastation of the Enterprise D being blown up from under him, and his family dying in a fire, I guess. They they don't really <laughs> mention that, but it did happen to him like they two weeks ago. It. They mention oh, it. Like, do a they? Couple t- yeah, he's in conversation with Kirk later on. Okay, my family died in a fire. <laughs> is basically that what he what says? Is, pretty Those much. Klingon <laughs> bastards killed my son. My family died in a fire. <laughs> yes, basically. <laughs> okay. He has been whisked away, and the, all of the trials about, oh, you lost a ship under your watch, go away instantly as uh, Shelby. Is she like an admiral at this point? Do they say what she I is? Think she, they say she's still a commander, but okay. I don't know. They should she, probably promote her. <laughs> well, like there's a, a key plot point in this book is how the thing that Shelby is working on, which is she is like in charge of uh, formulating a response against the Borg, supersedes like rank and command structure. The knowledge yes, of the Borg that's true. invasion is not along the usual lines of Starfleet, yes. because <laughs> uh, this is made obvious when they introduce a ship. So yes, Picard and Crusher are both sent on a secret mission. That mission is being administered by the USS Monitor, which is a defiant class vessel, but it is painted entirely black because it's fucking cool. Yes, and this is given like a whole uh, paragraph where they're like, most starships were painted like open white so that you could see the Federation coming even when you didn't have sensors. Uh, but this was painted black because no one needed to see it coming. And it could also cloak. 
Yes, it can also cloak, of course. And there's no Romulan on board. It's just illegally cloaking. This book acknowledges the Romulan on board the Defiant more than DS9 ever does. Uh, yes, that is fair. You're not wrong. Uh, that, uh, anyway, they're in orbit around a planet called New Titan where there was a Starfleet base and that Starfleet base went dark a while ago and they think it's probably the Borg that are doing it. So Picard, Crusher, and a team of like Black Ops agents are all sent down. They basically do like a ridiculous halo jump to get into onto this planet um, yes. because William Shatter fucking loves skydiving, apparently. <laughs> Oh, he loves it. It's Star yes. Trek ODST. He couldn't get it into Generations, so he wrote it into his book. <laughs> but he didn't get to do it. Yes. Uh, and this is the fake Section 31 that is not, because Section 31 hasn't been invented yet, that Picard is on a mission with. He has a neural <laughs> interface that is like a fake Locutus prosthetic that he can slap on with some like glue. I don't know. Anyway, it jacks into like a small subspace transceiver on his belt. And if he puts it on, he will be able to like r- roughly communicate with the collective without actually losing his mind and becoming part of the collective. Uh-huh. Yes, he has given this technology. Essentially, they're like, we have built a firewall. You should be fine. We don't know, uh, but we've done work over the last few years. This should like give you just the strength you need to stop the collective from like taking over your entire brain. Yes, and so their job is to get go there where the Borg are, use the fact that they will probably respect and respond to Lacutus to gather some Borg up and ship them off for Shelby to examine. If they can get a ship or like a transwarp drive or whatever, any cool Borg technology, they're supposed to get that too. Mm-hmm. That is a very simple plan, not a big deal. They anyway. get there, and the starbase has basically been transformed into a Borg cube, but it doesn't seem to have an engine. And they're like, what's this about? And McCard's like, I know what this is about. This is a trap. And he's right, because they immediately get attacked by a bunch of Borg. And because this is a book and it doesn't have a budget, the Borg are fucking wild now. There's, like, weird dog Borg. There's, like, kind yes. of, like, crazy centipede Borg. There's a giant, like, four-legged stomping mech Borg that just has a brain in a giant, like, robot suit. And everyone else in this Black Ops mission is, like, just a week before retirement. Well, like, one of them's, like, a Klingon, and one of them's, like, a Vulcan, and they all have crazy exotic explosive weapons and guns and, like, actual guns that shoot bullets. Just a bunch of cool stuff. And they all die. (laughs) They all instantly die, except for Picard Crusher, because they don't matter. dead because uh, they they topple the big giant walker one but then outside of like the br- weird brain casing spurts spider legs and like jumps at them and starts skewering them with needle legs and assimilating them and they have to blow themselves up and it's ridiculous it's so much it's a lot uh and so meanwhile the of that oh no, i was just gonna say what the end result of oh yes yeah, sure so is, yes so Crusher and Picard get in, into the scout ship and they are picked up by a Borg ship that comes to the planet to pick them up. Just like Picard expected. This is some sort of trap. Uh, he is able to communicate to the monitor to stay the hell away as he's scooped up and they are taken into this giant Borg ship. And then that Borg ship goes into transwarp and they are off on a mystical adventure that we will get back to in a while. Yes. Meanwhile, on Viridian 3, uh, Riker and Deanna regroup with everybody. They go looking for Spock. Spock is in the ruins of the Enterprise-D, where he got a child's workstation computer going because he's Spock, damn it, he can do anything, and has reprogrammed it to give him, like, the database files he needed on the history of Captain Kirk, and he's basically going through Captain Kirk's memory alpha page, trying to figure (laughs) out who could possibly want the body of James T. Kirk. 
Uh, and he's, uh, he assumes it has to be someone from his past because why would anyone notice or care that Kirk is here? And, uh, Riker's like, what if he's from the future? And Spock's like, you idiot, you child. If he was from the future and he wanted to get Kirk's body, why would he come when Kirk's already dead? Like if he needs Kirk, he could come three days ago or three weeks ago when Kirk was alive and just beam him out before he died. I love the... So Riker has a question, what if someone's from the future? And in any other like version of a script or a book, someone would say, of course he's not that stupid. Uh, instead, because this is Star Trek, and that has happened multiple times, the answer is, of course he's not. That's not how that would logically work. That would go a different way. <laughs> yes. It's amazing. Meanwhile, Deanna has doubts about Spock because she senses a bunch of em- weird emotions coming off of him, sadness about Kirk, interest in this whole thing, and the nagging sensation that Spock believes Kirk is not dead, which is crazy because clearly his body was right there. Kirk is dead. Uh this does not engender any sort of like confidence in Riker, which we'll get back to in a while. Oh, we'll get back to Riker. <laughs> we sure will. Meanwhile, uh, on Konos. Oh, fuck. We doing that now? <laughs> this is the next thing that happens in this book. Okay. So on Konos. Worf is in a nature preserve, which on the Klingon homeworld means that he's running around basically in like a loincloth, I imagine, trying to fight a giant lizard creature to kill it, to eat it because that's what he does in his time off and if he doesn't do it the creature will kill him this is the cycle of life this is what it means to be a klingon warrior he succeeds in killing the giant lizard creature he goes to like eat it and he's confronted by like one of the nature uh like the park rangers and a klingon park ranger is like a weird masked monk who wears robes and just shows up to spout like philosophy at you apparently because Worf is not weirded out when this guy shows up and starts spouting some philosophy at him for a second. But then he starts threatening him and he's like, I have a question to ask you. And Worf's like, who is this guy? This is really weird. And he's like, I need to find John Luke Picard. And Worf is instantly worried and concerned as to what's going on. And then the the monk throws a batleth at him into the ground and is like, fight me, and pulls up the batleth. And there is a fight between Worf and this mysterious monk in which they go through a bunch of forms of the batleth. And Worf's narration is him describing as each pose represents like a philosophical attitude to combat and historical context of it. And it is the fucking coolest thing that's ever happened to the Klingons. Oh, my God. It's pretty good. Uh, Worf decides that this monk either is ancient and knows forms of combat that have fallen out of favor, or he's crazy, or both, but he needs to, like, defend himself, and so he does. Uh, unfortunately, he doesn't do a great job of it because the monk totally knocks him the fuck out, even though Worf expected to be dead. And Worf wakes up with, like, a concussion, furious that the monk did not kill him, and then the monk is cooking the lizard, and he's like, you're not supposed to cook it, you're supposed to eat it raw, that's what a warrior does. And then the monk's like, don't worry, I have a few questions, it'll only take a few minutes, and then Worf is like, minutes, that's a human term. (laughs) Yeah. Because Uh, what has happened... Is that that James T. Kirk has who's fucking... in his sixties or seventies <laughs> has defeated Worf, son of Moog, in uh, it is armed combat. Yes, has <laughs> just shown up at mid like early nineties Worf and beat him up hand to hand. What the fuck? Anyway, Worf does not give up his captain. He does break his bonds and like. like attack the monk and like knocks off his mask and like scratches him across the face and gets some DNA under his fingernails. That'll be important later. Um, and recognizes his assailant. How could he not? It's the most famous captain in all of Starfleet. But before that happens, uh, Kirk knocks him out and beams out. Mm -hmm. 
Kirk doesn't seem to know who he is. There's a bunch of stuff with him in Salatral where she's like seducing him on the holodeck and teaching him about his history. He was married to a Romulan because he believed in Romulan freedom. And Picard came and murdered his wife and children. And he yes. relives this through the holodeck as she like adjusts his like pain and pleasure centers to make him believe it through reinforcement. And there's her there's, there's a point in this plot where he's like, Oh, he's not responding to the to the to the brainwashing properly. And she's like, Well, fine, I'll do it, and turns off the holodeck and then just goes to make out with him. <laughs> yes. Like that happens in this book. Yes, so she is working with a Romulan speaker, basically the Romulan version of Locutus called Vox, who used to be her lover, and that's not a problem at all. Clearly not a thing that's going to trip her up and cause her demise. I don't know Absolutely what you're talking not. about. Absolutely not. It couldn't. Uh, Vox's whole deal is that he's like willing to help her out with this plan because I guess it'll get Picard out of the way. But also this plan kind of seems like a lot of horseshit, and he doesn't really believe in it. The Collective doesn't really believe that Salatrell has a good plan here. And I kind of agree with the Collective on this one. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the Collective also shouldn't have agreed to this. Yes, but they're kind of curious, and it didn't cost them much. They weren't using that machine anyway, basically, right? Yes. And f as far as the Collective knows, John luc Picard's, like, missing, so they didn't have any other better way, because basically Shelby, like, took him off the grid when she sent him on that mission. So they don't have any other way than, like, Kirk going out and asking Picard's old crew where Picard is, because the Borg are really bad at information gathering. It's amazing because this is the only time this has happened like it just so happens that the one time the ball like the ball can't just wait a week for him to show up again well they're ready because they've devoted a bunch of resources to this right they talk like, about that towards the end of the book yeah like it just so happens it's all times out perfectly that picard goes off the grid exactly when the ball are about to start their invasion Meanwhile, um, meanwhile yes. on the frozen planet of Trilex. Yes! <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Okay. Data yes. and Jordy are on shore leave, which means they pulled every favor that they had between the two of them to get to Trilex, which is a planet that used to be a like vast technological wonderland where there was AI and humans living or living being like organic beings living together in some sort of detente, but then like 10,000 years ago, something mysterious happened and wiped out all life on the planet as the sun went nova. And erased all the computer records, except for some, like, encoded chips that are buried under the ice of this frozen world. And they are both interested in digging them up because if they can piece it together enough to answer the Trilex question, which is like a, uh, what's the word I want? Uh, not psychology, sociology. Sociological, like, problem that has, like, plagued scientists for decades. They could find out whether or not this is, like, an example of a time when humans and organic beings could, or uh, inorganic beings couldn't live together and killed each other. Or whether or not it's something else. So Data obviously cares, and Jordy, because he's a good friend, also cares. Unfortunately, this is Data three weeks after the events of Star Trek Generations, yeah, so is. he has an emotion chip he can't, like, remove because it's stuck, even though that stops being true in the next movie. And... He is going through all the emotions in the world, and it's a disaster. Jackson, tell me about Trilex. Okay, so what happens with Trilex is they, they've gone to get this thing, which is great because, like, Geordi's just helping out his friend. Um, and then they start having a conversation, and Data just, just starts talking too much. And Geordi's like, just shut up. Just shut up for a minute. But because... Uh, he doesn't start talking I can't too remember much. He exact... starts swearing too much. Right, right. I, I couldn't remember the exact procession of events. Yes, He starts going like, man, shit. Shit, God. God, hell, shit every time because troy has said it would be good to express your full range of emotions in your language which seems to be like this is not actually implied but 
I found it funny that Troy would do this like just to fuck with Jordy. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I think Troy thought it was a good idea, and Jordy has to reap the consequences. <laughs> uh, that is probably true. Uh, this is the entire my entire read of that comes just from knowing about TNG and like having listened to too many Marina Sirtis interviews. <laughs> yes, no, that's fair. Uh, um, but. So he's swearing all the time. He's like, just shut up, Data. But because he like is too forceful with that and Data's only just got emotions, uh, or got emotions, quote-unquote, the way they, they interpret that in this book is very cool, which I'm shocked at because I hate the emotion chip, uh, is that he's like, wait, my friend hates me now. He's angry with me. And then he immediately starts crying. And Johnny's like, That's no, a, I... Yeah. I, the problem I, with that yes. is that they're on a frozen world and Data's not wearing a space suit. <laughs> no, because he's an android. Because what could go wrong? It's not like he's going to start crying. Oh, wait. So his eyes are frozen shut, and he's and Jordy's like, I didn't mean it. It's fine. I was just annoyed with you. We get annoyed with people. We work through it. And, jo- and Jordy, uh, no, and Data is like, I've I've betrayed my my best friend. I am overcome with grief and sorrow. What has happened to me? I can't stop crying. I can't. Also, open my, my eyes, eyes are frozen <laughs> shut. Yes, <laughs> and he decides uh, to. Um, immediately shoot himself in the face with a face. No, no, that's after he that's after he cheers up. Okay, I forget which way it went around. <laughs> yeah, so so he's like, oh, Jordy, I'm an emotional cripple. I'm no good to you. I'm no good to anyone. I I'm just I I just can't handle this. This emotion stuff is too much. And Jordy's like, oh, I'm so sick of this data. Every day, like it, it, seemingly on the hour, every hour, you have some emotional breakdown over something new. It's like hanging out with a teenager. And data, being exactly what Jordy just described, immediately perks up and is like, oh, I'm happy now. Because if that's the case, if we trace back from the moment I installed the emotion chip, that means I'm in my teenage years, which means, like, in three weeks I'm going to be fine. I'll just be a functioning emotional adult. And Jordy's like, great, if we make it that long, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and then Data's like, well, now I'm fixed, and then points a phaser at his face, and then Jordy's like, Data, don't do that. And Data's like, look, while I may be an emotional cripple, I still know how to operate a phaser. And then phasers off the ice around his eyes. <laughs> So what happens is he's like, I'm fine now. I'm Nothing's wrong with me. Shoots himself in the face. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then in the middle of that, a mysterious person in a spacesuit shows up. And they're like, there's not supposed to be anyone here. The Vulcan Science Academy would let us know if someone's coming. And this mysterious person proceeds to, like, disable both of them. I wonder who it is. I wonder who it is. Yeah. And then Jordy has a suit puncture. And he's like, I'm going to... Uh, he, he goes to Jordy and he's like, tell me where John Luke Picard is. If you don't, I'll let you die. And Data, Jordy's like, I don't know. And even if I did know, I wouldn't tell you. You can just let me die. And he's like, what if I go and wipe the mind of the android to pull the information out? And Jordy's like, I'm pretty sure he doesn't know either. And also, you probably shouldn't kill, like, two beings to get information that neither of us know. And uh, basically, he goes to, like, wipe out his mind. Uh, and they both are presumably dead, right? Also, they find out who it is, and uh, Data's like, I can't, uh, Data sees him, uh, because he clears off the, like, reflective visor or whatever, and uh, the figure's like, you recognize me, and Data's like, I recognize who you're supposed to be, but that's impossible, and he's like, why don't you tell me, and Data's like, no, I'm not going to do that either, and then he puts (laughs) the leads on and disables it, and James T. Kirk, obviously, uh, tries to rip the information out of Data, which would presumably kill him, cut to... It was a holodeck the whole time. A recreation of this scene on the holodeck, a suite of DS9 as Riker, Worf, Troy, Data, Jordy, and Julian Bashir are here reviewing the data files of all of this stuff. This is one of my favorite dumb tropes of a thing 
actually happens, but then the way that you transition out of that is you reveal like that you are now in a scene of someone watching a holodeck or hologram or recording of the scene. Like it's yes. not like the whole scene never happened and it was all a holodeck. It just uses that to quickly transition from what's happening. And they're like, man, we really should have been dead. It was weird that we were su- we survived, uh, which is also what happened with Worf. And so. We know from the other plot that clearly something is going on. There's a war inside Kirk. He is doing oh, all his missions. Yes. He so is Spock not is here. killing them. Spock is here also, yes. yes. So everyone's here and they have this data. They have the DNA from Worf's fingernails that proves that it is Kirk. It has to be Kirk. It's not a clone. It's not a temporal duplicate. It's not a actual James accident. T. Kirk. Yes, it's not a transport accident. It's actual James T. Kirk. And they have the image data from Data's visual processors that they overlay. And the computer's like 99.999999 just, and Riker's like, shut it off. I don't care. Uh, and everyone is convinced, except for Riker, that the figure that attacked Worf and Data and Jordy has to be James T. Kirk and he didn't kill them even though he said he was going to and he desperately wants to know where Jean-Luc Picard is and Riker's really tense because Riker's the only person who knows where Jean-Luc Picard is and no one else does yes. um, which means that it is likely that he would be the next target Cork shows up briefly just to be like, I want to know what's going on in this hollow suite uh, and is rebuffed and he's like, I've never seen copy protection like this as he tried to break into the hollow suite or whatever <laughs> Starfleet DRM <laughs> Yes, also, they all complain about how dirty the hollow suite was and that they had to clean it themselves. Yeah, they all shit on Quark a lot. Yep. Uh, Even this though is probably... they've got a, the Challenger right there. The Challenger is right there. They yeah, have so there a galaxy-class star, starship. We, we'll talk about that when it comes to it, but there is a galaxy-class starship docked at DS9. That is basically the base of affairs for all the Federation stuff that happens in, in the on- ongoing book, unless we specifically say the Monitor is there. Yes. Um, anyway, uh... That uh, that all happens, and Kirk's like, okay, we can't talk about any of this. We'll just keep it quiet. We'll figure out what to do. Or not Kirk, Riker, sorry. We'll figure out what to do. And as he does that, he... Uh, is that where him and Spock get in the fight? Does this happen first? Um, I don't... I th- hmm. I think this is what happens next. I think him and Spock get in the argument. Because Spock get, has to leave. Yeah, Spock has to leave for the next stuff to happen. <laughs> Yes, right. Then the the, the arg- there's a lot of Spock arguments. The, the, the right. So the Riker thing happens now. So right. So Riker refuses to believe that Kirk is alive, and also believes that if he is alive and looking for Kirk, for Picard, he must be the enemy, and we have to operate under that fact. Spock is of the opinion we need to figure out who brought Kirk back to life because they're the real enemy, and we have to pursue that line of questioning, and that's important and interesting. Um, he recognizes a, a device that uh, Kirk had that disabled data that is Romulan in origin. He's like, maybe it's Romulans. And Riker's like, hmm, maybe you're working with the Romulans. You've been there on Romulus a long time, Ambassador. What would you give to get your captain back? And Spock is so enraged that he like physically recoils and says Vulcans don't threaten. They just state their pro- the, their intentions, which is the thing Sarek said in Journey to Babel. Yes. Uh, thank you. And then marches out, basically, like absolutely upset to the point that like, Data recognizes his emotions, and Troy is, like, aghast at how angry Spock is. Yeah, no, like, Riker has crossed every single line, uh, which is now a good time to talk about how, with the last book, um, a fun way of reading it was, like, seeing Shatner's hilarious interpretations of the characters and the people he's worked with. There is much less of that here, uh, because... 
it just feels like oh we have written some books with the um tng crew there aren't like big reinterpretations of like what those characters mean like there are with tos characters except Riker, who gets the worst of it because he's just a shitty cop dad the entire time yes he is the most like what if kirk wasn't a cool cowboy it was just a stuffed shirt like middleman efficient of the starfleet arm of cophood and it sucks and yeah it, it does not paint a flattering picture of Riker, and you can only read it as Kirk yes. recognized that Riker is supposed to be the Kirk of the TNG crew and fucking hates him for it. Hates him so much. It's like, you can't be Kirk. You're not as cool as Kirk. You're just a boring dad that tells everyone what to do. Even though that's not what Riker is. Like, he's the warmest person. Yes. <laughs> like, this is the most, like, wrong way to, like, talk about a character without actually getting them, like, textually wrong. But everything yes. is just off. Yeah. Uh, there's a hilarious really moment weird. later that we'll get to. <laughs> hmm. um, but no, so, so Spock goes off. What, meanwhile, on DS9... Uh, Riker is, like, walking around being like, hmm, if Kirk attacked those other people, he's probably going to be attacking me. And then he realizes he's being followed by a Bajoran monk that he doesn't know. Uh, I wonder he, who that is. Yeah, no, he <laughs> he races around and tries to ditch him and d- doesn't work, and they get in a fist fight in the corridor. And that fist fight spills into a shuttle bay, and it turns out it was a trap, and everyone's there to stun the Bajoran monk, who is actually James T. Kirk. And they do that uh, because Kirk's like, oh, this is obviously a trap. I knew it was a trap. Of course I walked into this trap. Uh, and then he, he's stunned. And then as he, like, collapses from the stun, he, like, collapses against Kirk, uh, Riker and whispers Spock. And Riker's like, oh, no, it is James T. Kirk. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this Riker sucks so much. <laughs> yes. Who could have seen Who could have seen that this would be Kirk? Meanwhile, Picard and Crusher... On this Borg scout ship or ship that's being uh, collected, they are in transwarp and they dock at a transwarp station, which shouldn't be possible. And it's like a weird multidimensional Tesseract cube station thing. It exists in five dimensions. Yes, they're very baffled by it. Uh, And they're there and they notice that there is a Borg and Romulan thing happening. And uh, Picard's like, oh, no, I've always thought that the Romulans would be a great asset to like galactic civilization if they could get over their bullshit. And what if I'm the person who thought that 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 was a good idea and the Borg took that from me and made an alliance with the Romulans? And Crusher's like, come on, get over yourself, please. (laughs) I love it so much. So there are multiple scenes with Crusher like this where Picard's like, oh, no, uh, I didn't fight the Borg hard enough i must have like i, sh- I should have stopped them i should have like been able to overpower the collective and crusher doesn't even like pep talk him she's like shut up like we're not even going to go down that line of questioning because you know it's wrong and you're just like indulging in this uh and compared to first contact where like it takes it from the other angle the idea that like all of the insecurity on picard isn't like hatred for the borg but just guilt for himself that he wasn't able to be the perfect captain um, yes while his everyone around him is like it's fine every no one cares uh, because this is Star Trek, you idiot. Um, yes. And it, it also paints a really nice image of uh, Crusher and Picard's relationship. Like, I like anything that allows them to have a really good, like, trusting rapport where they're like, Crusher doesn't even need to talk Picard up because that's stupid. That's, like, beyond their level. She can just, like, get him to get together like this. Yes. Meanwhile, Spock is on Romulus again, trying to figure out where that weapon that Kirk fired on Trilex came from, which means he's infiltrating, like, uh, black market back channel Romulan arms dealers, which means he's talking to a bunch of, like, Romulan cyberpunks in a cafe. (laughs) Oh, this scene's so cool. (laughs) 
uh, and is basically allowing himself to be captured by like DNA and fingerprint identification through like the two most inept criminals in the galaxy in order to work his way up the chain to figure out where their supplier is so he can talk to them about why they're supplying a human, specifically James Kirk, with these disruptor weapons. He basically like finds Romulan Balkan skull. Yes. <laughs> but one of them is like a hot Romulan lady. Yes. But... <laughs> And they're really into, like, weird, like, uh, brain, in like, augmented sex. Yep, they sure are. This is a yes. book. <laughs> yes. Um, so he's captured and is like, oh, I'm definitely not trying to be captured. There's a bit where he's like, I, I am a Vulcan. A Vulcan would not logically get them in a situation where they would deliberately be captured, would they? And they're like, that's true. I guess we can trust you enough to capture you. <laughs> yes. He's like, that's that getting captured on purpose is something a human would do. And they're like, oh, humans, God, they're even worse than Vulcans. <laughs> it's really good. The fact that there's a situation where the people kidnapping him have to like interrogate him, whether he is trustworthy enough to be kidnapped. But also they're so incompetent that he basically has to tell them how to kidnap him. Yep. It's, it, it's good. There's some like good comedy in this book. Yes. Anyway, they kidnap him and they take him to their like their like middleman supplier guy. And it's like a name in the underworld that Spock knows. He's like, oh, I recognize who that is. That This is clearly the person that will help me out. And he gets there and that person apologizes for what's about to happen because another figure steps out, vaporizes all the Romulans and pulls off his hood and reveals that he is Vox of the Borg. And Resistance is indeed futile. Resistance is futile. And yeah, Spock goes, yes, indeed, fascinating, or whatever. Some Spock-ass thing to say. <laughs> yes. So so Spock is also taken to the transwarp Borg base where Picard is. And this is about the time that Picard and Crusher get a terminal, and Picard wants to check to assuage his own conscience. Who, would, who possibly recommended the idea that the Romulans and the Borg work together? Please show us. And the Borg computer, because it doesn't have security, because it's a Borg computer in transwarp space, just helpfully turns over the information that is Spock, who is on the base, walking with a Borg. And they're like, oh no, Spock's here. Uh, yes. And then, like, so Spock is taken to the, the the cube and he's like you will now be assimilated and he begins to be assimilated but then just isn't because according to like the scanners and the database of the Borg he's already been assimilated uh, and so you basically have a moment where the Spock walks past Picard looking at an image of Spock um, saying this guy is definitely a Borg while looking like a Borg and Spock, the real Spock, walking past looking at Picard being a Borg. Like, it is, I tweeted that, like, this plot is functionally identical to a comedy of manners at this point. Where Spock is 100% convinced that the traitor has to be Picard uh, because that's the only thing that makes sense. Also, he's clearly a Borg. Look at him. Um, Yes. And Picard is like, oh, it has, the traitor has to be, uh, spock because it says he's a borg and because yeah he asked a borg and the borg is like he's already within the collective don't worry about it (laughs) yes so those two things are both true and yet well (laughs) well spock is already within the collective that's true spock's thing is just i saw him (laughs) spock has much less evidence to go on but he saw Lacutus on a Borg station like i you would draw the same conclusion that's fair that is fair uh (laughs) yes so that that is happening and independent of each other uh they both yeah they both decide they have to get back to the federation and tell someone yes all all the federation's defenses are going to be meaningless if someone inside the federation has been working with the borg we need to tell them about the traitor uh so they both escape um 
Uh, Spock doing it by just taking command of the Borg because they think he's already part of the Borg. Yes, he literally goes up to a guy and says, please escort me somewhere. And the Borg is like, yes, I will do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they both head towards Cup 2, meanwhile. Uh, yes, meanwhile on DS9, they're examining Kirk and Bashir is like, uh, this is like a crazy thing. Like, he's got a bunch of weird implants. I don't know what to do with. We probably need to take him to Dr. Crusher because these look like they're probably like they could be Borg or they're similar to Borg stuff. And we need to find her because she's the only person who can remove them. And Riker's like, all right, this whole thing is classified at the highest level. We're going to New Titan because that's the last place Dr. Crusher was reported from. And so everyone gets on board the Challenger and they take off to New Titan to rendezvous with the Monitor. The Monitor has just been hanging out waiting for someone to talk to them to tell them what to do. Yes. Uh, and uh, they show up and they ask where Crusher is. And they're like, I don't know. She left like a couple days ago. We have no idea what's going on. And they're like, well, we need to talk to Kirk. And the implant is like it's growing because it's like a weird cancerous Borg implant. And they need to remove it if they're ever going to like actually talk to him without his weird programming that blocks who he like that blocks his memory from knowing that he's James C. Kirk because the implant is what's keeping his memory blocks in check. Yes. Uh, and Bashir's like, I don't think I can do this. And if I do this, I will kill him. And Riker's like, no, no, no. I'm ordering you to do this. You can lodge a protest later after you remove it. Uh, yeah. This seems hilarious and pretty good because even though its interpretation of Riker is completely off, uh, what it says about Starfleet is pretty good because Bashir spends the whole time being like, this is clearly wrong and I don't like this and I this is bad. I'm going to tell you that I think this is bad. I mean, I'll do it because I like, I'm like i going to follow orders, but I'm going to file my protest and tell you that you're wrong. And Riker walks out going like, ah, oh, he thought that Bashir was a good kid. <laughs> yep. Uh, so even though like its vision of Riker as the like cop dad who tells everyone what to do is completely off, the idea that a Starfleet person responds to being told that they're wrong by going, ah, oh, this person will go far, yep. is pretty good. So Bashir tries to remove the implant. Data is assisting, though he can't do much other than hand him tools because Data, and like check the notes of Crusher's like removal of the Borg implant in Best of Both Worlds because he's not a trained doctor. I don't, I don't think this is how Data works. Because Data's like, I could replicate the surgery anytime, exactly, but I could never make it up on my own. Data paints, he dreams, he does a lot of things that are just him making stuff up on his own at this point. Yeah, he, I saw masks. Yeah, does that mean that every time he flies the ship, he has to watch someone fly the ship to the same place where he can replicate it? No, Data is capable of improvisation on his own. It's not that hard. Yeah, this is, a, like, it's clearly just an excuse to have the plot happen. Yes. It's not the best excuse. They could do better. But the very anyway. mostly good, but it's fine. Anyway, they are going through the surgery. It's not going well. Bashir's got a bunch of the implant removed, but it's not enough. And at this rate, he can't put it back together and he can't remove it all. And thus Kirk will just be in a coma until he dies from the surgery. And he doesn't know what to do when suddenly the collision alarm goes off and there's a great scene of data going like, oh no, clearly like all of his like reaction times accelerate as he expects Bashir to have cut a hole in Kirk's like entire skull with the laser scalpel as the collision alarm sound. But that is not the case because Bashir is fucking good at his job. Yes. And what happened was a very, very small, fast experimental warp ship dropped immediately in front of the challenger and caused the collision alarms to automatically go off. And that person is someone who can actually help Bashir remove the implant that Bashir never suspected they are beamed into sick bay, and it is Leonard H. McCoy, Admiral of Starfleet, retired, 144 years old. He's so old. In, in like a floating chair and like an exoskeleton to help him move. Yeah. He is 
so old. He's 144, and he's like, hey, I'm here to help. I'm here to tell you about how to remove this thing. No, he, the first thing he says is, you're the one who's been pestering Starfleet for Jim's old medical records. Why didn't you ask his personal physician? Yes. And she's like, uh, sir, I thought you were dead. Well, I'm not, damn it. <laughs> no, like, oh, I've been hiding for the... I'm just not dead. You just thought no. I was dead because I was old. <laughs> To be fair, he is impossibly old. Yes, he's impossibly old even for Star Trek, where people live to their hundreds regularly. Yes, he is the he is the record oldest living human at 144. Yes. And he's here to help. He's like, I can't do surgery, but I can tell you what to do. I know how this works. I've done, I've removed sim- harder things than this from people in my time being a main character of a Star Trek show. Let me explain this to you. And then guides him through the surgery and surgery takes a long time. And in that time, Data watches and then like Riker and Troy come in and Worf comes in and Jordy comes in and everyone watches as Starfleet's oldest mind and newest hands perform miracles and save James T. Kirk. It's a really good ending to the chapter. Like the ends with like the next line is like, uh, he saw like Data sees uh, McCoy like cry when he realized that he has saved his friend, uh, and Data wonders who will one day cry for him. Yes, <laughs> which is like a good line, but also hilarious in the context of uh, everything. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, yeah. So they've got they've got Picard, uh, or not Picard. They've got Kirk. The implants removed. Uh, and they want to ask him some questions and all that, but there's the problem of all of the weird mental programming that's happened. They can't remove that, right? That's where we're at. Yes. So Kirk will, is now talking to McCoy. He's talking to everyone. like, I'm Kirk. I remember being Kirk again. That's fine. I'm not, I don't, I, I'm not going to do evil missions anymore. Thank you for saving me. Uh, but like a couple of times someone mentions Picard and every time that happens, like, uh, he kind of winces a little bit and Troy senses like, uh, oh real anger in him and she's like this isn't uh, this isn't hatred of picard it's like the hatred you would have for an organization it's weirdly non-specific and just isn't like a correct emotion for yes. the, the thing that is like textually happening so we should he's not on deprogrammed yet and we need to be wary also he claims that he doesn't remember any of his time with salatrell and troy knows that's not true Yes, he says, there's like a line where he's like, oh, he knew he, he couldn't tell them because then they'd, uh, they they would lock him up or tell him. Yes. You know. So so while McCoy is telling him about all of his dead friends and family uh, and that Scotty and Spock are still out there causing trouble somewhere in the universe, uh, the Borg ships start arriving from the transwarp station. Yeah. Which one shows up first? I don't actually remember. Uh, Spock shows up first. Okay, so they are like, oh, no, there's a transwarp ship. What, what are we going to do? They're asking permission to dock through, like, radio because the Borg ship. It doesn't actually have, like, communication systems because why would it need those? Yes. Uh, and so they all clear a shuttle bay to get it ready, and the ship docks, and out tumbles Spock and this guy, right? And Spock is like, my friend will watch over the ship. He's very little, literally minded. You won't have to worry about him. He's cut off from the collective. He can't do anything. He'll just guard the ship. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and he's like, "Just wait by the ship. I will make plans for their assimilation." Yes, <laughs> and then explain like the situ- He explains the situation that oh, there's a traitor. We need to find out who it is, or I know who it is. I will tell you. Uh, and then they talk about Kirk being alive, and Spock is like overcome with emotion and all of that. And as he's about to explain who the traitor is, a second Borg scout ship shows up and requests permission to dock, and everyone is having a very rough day. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, Picard and uh, Crusher step out 
And they're like, we need to tell you about who the traitor is. (laughs) And, uh, well, so what happens is they come out and then they take off the helmet and it's Locutus and everyone's like, oh, Locutus. And he's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. And goes to pull off the implant and everyone's horrified that he's going to rip off his Borg implant, like in front of them. They're like, oh, it's going to be gross. And it's actually just held on with a bit of glue, like they said. (laughs) Um, and he's like, I need to tell you who the traitor is. And Spock is like, I also am going to tell you who the traitor is. And they literally like point at each other and go, it's him. <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, and as everyone's about to try to figure out the situation by talking to each other, as Star Trek is wont to do, a door opens and a wide phaser beam floods the compartment and stuns everyone except for Picard, Crusher, and Data. Data because he's an android, Picard and Crusher because they're wearing armor. Uh, in that time, Riker, who is clearly the cool character, he responds to this threat by shouting Deanna and trying to dive to protect her, even though they're all flooded with the stun and they're all knocked out. Yep. Uh Data is like, huh, that didn't work. I would require a higher setting. And then a voice says, oh, that's good to know. And then shoots him with a higher setting and knocks him out. (laughs) (laughs) This is Kirk, who is here to kill Picard now that Picard is here. And him and Picard have a fight and a conversation. And Picard's like, oh, no, I have to get rid of him. I have to figure out what's going on. And leads him, the smartest thing to do, leads him directly to a holodeck where he can run around a recreation of the challenge. Like, he pulls up the Enterprise D uh, as a schematic in the holodeck and it'll just look like the challenger to Kirk. Cause he doesn't know one ship from another and he can lead him on a chase, the entire holodeck for till everyone gets re- re- like resuscitated and told what to do. And they can fix the situation. Yes. Unfortunately, Kirk knows how holodecks work because of Salatrell. <laughs> yep. He has been like on the holodeck having his brain programs is very familiar with holodecks and he reprograms the holodeck to become the original enterprise bridge. Yep. And so Picard's like, oh, he's he's thinking he's going to the battle bridge where Kirk can't get to because he doesn't know how starships work in this century. And instead comes on to the Constitution bridge and is like, oh, no. And then tries to access the computer. But Kirk reprogrammed the computer to answer him like the original Enterprise computer. Yes. Uh, and then they have a conversation and they fight and they literally like tumble over the railing, like trying to strangle each other until Kirk or Riker and Spock and everyone barge in and go, that's enough. You are all children. (laughs) They sure do. That does happen. Yes. Jackson, why don't you tell us what happens next? Because my voice hurts. (laughs) Uh, So everyone is there together uh, on this bridge and everyone's like, okay, what the hell's going on? Why are you all hating each other? What, why are you fighting? We need to, we need to fix this. Everything needs to be explained. And as we said earlier, when uh, you need everyone to understand why, um, these weirdly conflicting motivations are all happening at the same time what you need to do is a mind meld and so they do something that has never been done before where all three at once spock kirk and picard have a three-way mind meld yeah uh and everyone understands each other immediately kirk like literally goes it's okay i don't want to kill you anymore yes (laughs) that is a line from this book yes uh, but yeah, so that is that is a way for all of them to confirm each other's stories, not be able to cover it up because the people who don't trust each other are all covered in this mind meld. Uh, and then they can discover everything that's happened in the book to everyone at this point and put together a plan once they do that. And they do that. They do that. And Picard knows what's going on and Kirk knows what's going on and Spock knows what's going on. But then as Spock is feeling out what it means to be tied into the collective by mind melding with these people... He like something emerges from his mind and he realizes that once long ago, he also touched the collective of the Borg. Yes. And that was 
Vija. Vija. Yes. <laughs> like, you get the three of them all together being like, we are the Borg. We are Vija. <laughs> yes. So how does that work? Why Vija, Jackson? Oh, I don't really know. I, hang on. Uh, so Vija, I mean, because I hadn't watched the Okay, I'll do this then. Never mind. So I, like, no, 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 I'm I'll trying to put this. it together. But I, like, so, yes. it has long been speculated that the Borg originate from far away in the Delta Quadrant because it's the only part of... Well, I mean, they know that because they were thrown there with a, in Q, who or whatever it was. Um, and uh, they're like, we needed to find... If we found their home planet, someday we could maybe go and bring the fight to them and like kill the Borg or whatever they do. Uh, Spock realized that he once saw a planet of living machines that were like marriages of flesh and of robotics that all consumed a planet. And that was when he mind melded with the V'ger, the probe that was once like lost in a wormhole and ended up on the other side of the galaxy and came back hundreds of years later, turned into a giant space probe with sentience that was trying to like find its creator. The supposition they have is that V'ger went to the Borg homeworld and some earlier version of what the Borg are found it, thought it was like supposed to be a functioning living being and repaired it with that knowledge and then sent it back on its way. Uh, and thus, using the information that Spock has from where V'ger was, can trace that back to find the uh, Borg homeworld. It's a long ways away. Thankfully, they have two transwarp drives sitting in their shuttle bay as those Borg ships showed up yes. just recently. They sure so do. They can put they can put one on the monitor because the monitor is a Defiant class vessel made to fight the Borg, and thus has a slot marked. If you ever find a transwarp engine, please <laughs> plug in here. <laughs> it sure does. They're like, we, this is technology we might need to use one day. Yep. Uh, and so they're all going to get on the monitor and they're going to plug that transwarp in and they're going to go to the Borg homeworld. They're going to find a way to stop the Borg from invading with the Romulans before they can do it. They sure are. Yep. Uh, and that's the plan. And to send them all off, all of our heroes, the captain of the monitor rechristens the vessel for this one voyage, the USS Enterprise. Yep. The new Enterprise in the version of this book is a, like, a Black Ops Defiant. But they are very explicit. It's like, it'll never be shown in the history books, but I felt it was the only thing appropriate for the captains of the Enterprise. This book is non-canon. Yes, <laughs> extremely non-canon. None more dubious than the Shatterverse. Ah, uh, damn right about that. Books less ca- less canon than, than regular Star Trek books. So they all go to this. Uh, meanwhile, like uh, Kirk is dying from the nanites. They can't stop it. They're going to like reprogram to the point that he dies within days. Uh, Kirk's like, I can still be a help. I can still do something. You can't just like, they talk about like ways to save him that are very Star Trekian, and the science checks out, but he's like, no, I have to do something. That's my job. That's what I do. Yeah. Like McCoy is like, you should go like fly around the sun really fast. And then like, you'll come back in like three years and we'll have had a team work on the science for the whole time. And you'll maybe we'll be able to save you. Yeah. Uh, and Kirk's having none of it. He's like, Kirk's I like, have to go we, and yeah. do on this mission and brackets clearly sacrifice myself again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they're all ready to go. They get to the Delta Quadrant very, very, very far away. And it is like a planet around a dying sun. And here is the entire Borg and Romulan fleet. But the planet itself is a living being. And it has sent out waves and waves of new revisions of like its children to try to find another being that is like it, a living planet of technology that it can be with and understand because it is so alone in the universe. And that is the origin of the Borg. They did it. They they Star Trek the Borg. They fully Star Trek the Borg. So, like, 
<laughs> this book came out months before First Contact. Yes, there's that too. Um, and obviously all of this would be thrown out, but I like the idea that they they finally found a way to like make the Borg like to completely Star Trek their origin and like what the identity of that species was. Yep, and then the movies were like, but what if a hot lady? <laughs> that does happen. Yes, that is the next movie. Yeah. Uh, yes. So... Um, they go there, and they they have a plan. So they so they had they, what, what happens in the I forgot the order of this. So they head there. So and they see the, the Romulan pl- and Borg fleet. Yeah. So they need to get to the the planet to scan it to find out like if there is a weakness they can exploit that will actually like shut down the collective. And there's an idea that they all have that there is a central node. I think Picard's the one that has it. It's like if they go there and they destroy that, then the whole collective will be shut down and you can't repair it because there's no redundancy because it was made so long ago that it was before the Borg, as we know it, existed when redundancies are a thing. Um, They don't know where it is. They have to go to the planet to scan it. That's going to take time. In the meantime, the minute they start scanning the planet, the entire fleet will recognize them even though they're cloaked because all of them are Romulans who understand how cloaking technology works. Yes. their plan is to disrupt the communications with a giant like deflector blast that the defiant class ships can do. Cause they're built to fight the Borg, you know, uh, that will scramble communications enough to let them get to the planet and do this scan without being detected. They do that. The Borg is scrambled. They won't move cause they can't communicate with each other. So if they, if the Borg ships moved, they would like hit each other and blow each other up. And basically the entire Borg fleet is committed to this invasion. So they like, if they ruin these ships, they don't have other ones to come and help. Um, However, the minute this happens, Salatrell, who is here leading the Romulan side of this fleet, knows immediately that this is Kirk here to fuck up her day. Uh, clearly, he's gone rogue and is going to do this. And if she were Kirk, she would be scanning the planet for a weakness. And so she's the lone warbird goes to the planet to sk- help to find out if the Defiant is scanning the planet. And it is. So she attacks it and disable, like, it damages it, whatever. Um, and they're like, oh, we're under fire. We need to scan this a lot faster. Data has an idea, a flash of insight. Uh, if they're looking for a single node and what is it specifically? The way that they disrupt the board communications is not dissimilar to the way the sun going Nova and Trilex, uh, wiped out all technology. And he's like, what if the citizens of Trilex, both synthetic and organic, were not fighting each other, but we're actually fighting some earlier version of the Borg. And what they did was destroyed the like Borg node on their own planet on Trilex that had been built to establish communications with whatever the collective was at that time. So he overlays a map of Trilex over this Borg homeworld and they scan the area where the most damage was done in Trilex's explosion. And guess what? That's the Borg node immediately. And while this is all being explained, Kirk is thinking to himself, we would never have long conversations like this on the bridge of my enterprise. It's really weird that he can just talk to his captain about a plan and like a theory when all this stuff is happening. And then when they find the node, like immediately, he's like, hmm, maybe discussion does have a place on a bridge of a starship. (laughs) Yeah, no, it turns out that like, oh, not only have we answered the question in the subplot with the most hopeful answer possible, but it has provided the answers in the A plot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> everything so, comes together. So, 
uh, Kirk and Picard beam down because they're the ones who can get this done. It doesn't seem to be particularly well defended, so they can just go down there and like, oh, in the damage of Salatrell's attack, the weapons on this defiant ship are disabled. That's why they need to beam down. Someone needs to go down there and disable it by hand, and Picard knows there's an actual like disable button on it because the Borg of way back when were really dumb, apparently. Well, the whole uh, point of this is like, if it's the original planet, then you can't change this. This is the foundation of the Borg, so there has to be a core. There has to be like yep. where this started and it can't be fancy because it was before that that point yes so they, they head down there well they plan yes, to head down there because it is it is behind like wherever they're where they're going is behind a door that has not been opened for like two hundred thousand years it says it was yes. a long long time long, ago long long time um anyway while they're doing that the defiant ship and salatrol's warbird are in the middle of a fight this is a problem considering there aren't really good weapons on the defiant anymore but Salatrell has taken a bunch of damage too, uh, where what has happened is the Defi- the Salatrell ship has no shields. The Defiant has no weapons, and thus they're at detente because uh, the like the uh, Defiant is cloaked, so they don't know. Is that what it is? Yeah, the Defiant is cloaked. Yes, and so they can't find them. And they need to get this taken care of. And what happened, and uh, Salatrol is like, I think we know kind of where they're at, so we're just going to ram them. And that's what we're going to do. We'll, get, we'll nudge them out of space. They're just a tiny speck of a ship. We'll brush them aside, and all this will be over, and we will succeed. They go to, like, go on their position and ram them. And what happens is Kirk, it's Kirk, right, who does this? Yes. No, he's on he, the planet. He, he No, he pushes Data out the way. Is this before they beam down to the planet? Then? This is before they beam down to the planet. Yes. Okay. So the, right. the order of this gets a bit mixed up, but they have yes. to deal with. They have basically have this, to deal with Salatrol. Oh, ship this with, entire thing. This entire thing. Kirk having implant removed to the end of the book is like thirty pages. It moves really fast. <laughs> yeah. So this book is like three hundred seventy pages, and the last 40, 50 pages are insane with how much happens. <laughs> um. So what have as the War, Romney Warbird is bearing down on them, Kirk takes the Defiant and glides it in between the double holes of the Romulan Warbird. Uh, and thus he's inside the ship and they can't detect it because obviously they're using outward sensors and the ship is cloaked. They turn on the internal sensors to figure out what happens right as Kirk drops the cloak and puts shields at maximum. And then he turns the Defiant into like a lateral spin as it like rotates on its axis and it guts the Warbird from the inside out using the shields. And Salatrell yes. is fucking owned. So owned. Like, and not just owned uh, by what happens because like the ship blows up and she dies obviously but like the the description in the book is like because i expected her the whole time because she's like working with the bulb which is a terrible idea and dealing with this resentment towards kirk that at some point she would like do some redemptive sacrifice that allows uh, them to fight the Borg. That was my guess the whole time. Instead, what happens is she dies, and the narration is like, and she died knowing that she failed every single one of her intentions, and that Kirk would live on forever in history. <laughs> yeah. Like, fuck you. You came at Kirk. Fuck you, get owned. <laughs> William yeah, no. Shatner wrote this book. So, they beam down to the, the planet, and they have a couple, they have like a few minutes to figure it out before the Defiant comes back around and picks them up. Um, I'm saying the Defiant because it is a Defiant class ship, not because it's Defiant. Whatever. Shorthand, you know. Yes. Anyway. You can't say the Enterprise. Uh, <laughs> yes. No, that's <laughs> dumb. Uh, they go into this, like, mystical Borg cavern that has not been opened for hundreds of thousands of years. And in there is a fucking lever. <laughs> Move the lever <laughs> to deactivate and, the Borg. And But there is also, like, an army of Borg assembling thousands. to stop them. Yeah, thousands of them to stop them from pulling the lever. Uh, 
Kirk's like, I'll do this. You distract the Borg. And Picard uses the interface and connects it for the first time. And like, here's the collective and becomes Lacutus and then fights them off with all of his mental strength and says, I am not one of you and orders them all to retreat. And they do because they will listen to Lacutus, I guess. I don't know. And as he's in there, he explains what the lever does. If you pull it, this whole thing is going to blow up, but it will kill whoever pulls it because the explosion will be instantaneous. They argue over who's going to pull the lever because they're Starfleet captains. Even though Kirk is like days away from dying, Picard is willing to pull the lever because Picard's a little dense sometimes, I guess. Yeah, they have that pissing contest over the sacrifice. And Kirk uh, suggests that uh, there is a way out for everyone. He's like, let me tell you about how I solved the Kobayashi Maru. And Picard's like, the Kobayashi Maru can't be won. That's the whole point. And Kirk's like, yeah, it can, just by ways you don't really know about. And then punches Picard and drops his communicator and contacts the ship and says, beam up my position. And it throws it on Picard and Picard is beamed out. And Kirk goes and pulls the fucking lever. Yes. And all the Borg die. They're all gone. No more Borg. The Borg die. Like, all of the communications disrupted. The ships start crashing into each other. It's crazy. There's, like, an entire beam of light as the planet, like, explosions ripple across its surface. As Kirk pulled the lever, there's, like, explosions. And then there's also something strange behind him. And he was like, what is this? And leapt for it. And then there's, like, another death vision uh, of him. And he's like, oh, I'm falling on Viridian at Yosemite. Uh, as I always knew I would die alone. And he talks about that in his narration. And then there's a bit where in all of that, some, a vision, someone from heaven comes to talk to him and it's fucking Sarek. It's Sarek. <laughs> and Kirk's like, why you, why is it always you in the dream that I die alone? Why are you always here? And Sarek's like, is it something in your past or is it something in your future? Live long and prosper. James T. Kirk avenge me <laughs> to be continued uh, in avenger <laughs> and everyone on the ship is like oh kirk this is this, picard's like this is a more fitting farewell for james <laughs> kirk than a, a pile of rocks <laughs> they literally have scenes of people going man well, at least he got a good sacrifice this time <laughs> um and uh mccoy is like crying and spock leads him away and troy turns to Riker and is like I, I sense a weird thing from Spock. He still doesn't believe Kirk is dead. I think it's actually Picard says that too. And Picard's like, who knows? There are always possibilities, which is what the end of the last book was too. So Kirk's still alive. Don't worry about it. The end. Hello. Sorry. Sorry. Yes. Uh, you said, I sense a weird thing from Spock, and then I had to... Oh, uh, I, I just said the always there was always possibilities bit. Kirk's still alive at the end. We're, I'm, I, we, I finished the book. It's okay, over. Yes. It's over! Whoa, that was a big book. That was a big yes. book. Yes. It's great. This book... So explaining this book is hard, because, like, 7,000 crazy things happen in this book. <laughs> so many crazy things happen in this book. And just telling you about them took way too long. But this book's awesome. This is the, so I read this book as a kid. I was given it for like, uh, I guess it would be my 10th birth. No, uh, 96, right? I was given it my birthday. Um, so I'd have been 11 and this book colors a lot of what I feel about the TNG movies and that they fucking suck. Cause how could they ever hold up to this book? You saw first contact in the cinema, right? Yeah. I guess I would have had to have seen first contact before this then. No, 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 but, no, you wouldn't. You, your birthday's in October. First Contact came yes. out in November. You got this, like, month before. This is, like, so close. 
Oh, no wonder. No wonder Holy then. Yes. No, so, so I read this book and then immediately saw First Contact and evermore, I fucking hate First Contact because how could it live up to this where Kirk, Spock, and McCoy and everyone pile on a Defiant and go to the Borg homeworld and blow up the fucking Borg? John Luke, blow up the damn ship. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Nobody breaks their little ships here. God. I understand now. Like, I, I will never hate First Contact in the way you do. Like, I will still have some affection for that movie because of my kid. Time as a child. Childhood, that's yes. the phrase. God, I've been podcasting for my whole life. Yes. <laughs> um, But <laughs> I understand because this is so much better. And not only is it better than First Contact, but it's better than Generations as, like, a way to bridge these two casts together. Like, you get yes, moments because... of everyone interacting. You get moments of humanity between them. Because you're writing a thing that is long and you don't have to pay actors. You can just get Spock interacting with all of the TNG cast for pages and pages. And he's great. And you get McCoy. Because at this point, DeForest Kelly was probably not, like, capable of acting at this point. But you can get McCoy there, oldish balls, talking to Bashir, doing cool stuff. It's great. I The ways in which this crew interacts, and it's the three characters you really care about uh, from TOS integrating completely with this where fucking james kirk fights wharf there's so many good scenes in this book i love this book <laughs> yep it's really good and like the possibilities that come when um you don't have actors is really interesting because like i think if you had a scene of uh in an actual show of Riker, Spock, and Bashir in Quark's bar, like that, you cut that would break everything. You cannot film that. Yes, like that's yes, a terrible I agree. idea. Like if this was filmed, it would be awful. But in the context of a book where you can just like go through the lives of these characters and everyone just exists together, and you don't have to see people, uh, like the, you don't see the sets and the money and the like huge expense taken to like make this spectacle happen. Uh, it allows those um, crossovers to feel much more uh, human when they're well, when they're well handled. I assume we'll get to some dumbass crossovers at some point on this journey. It's going to be good. Yeah, no, I mean we have infinite books that are all crossovers to go. Right, like yeah. there's going to be a bunch of bad ones. But the potential for like you get to have these very different characters from different ships interacting in the same space and like exploring the tensions of that. Like we've already seen that in like this and in the way that the TOS crew interacted with the Shento. Like it's, it's cool. It is like not a thing I would ever want from the shows, but for this podcast, it's going to be great. Yep. There's, this was a lot to talk about Jackson. Do you have any final thoughts we didn't cover about this book? Cool things. uh, There's one thing we didn't mention, which doesn't matter, but, not only does Salatrol also falls for the same trick uh, as in Balance of Terror, that happens, but it's like not even her like full getting owned. That's just one of the fourth worth ways she gets owned in the book. Yes. <sighs> what a bad day she has. Yep. But for no, that's sure. It. That's it. That's really it. Yep. I think that's everything. This podcast went on way too long. It so. sure did. I'm so tired. Next book Next book has less plot stuff and more theme stuff, so that'll be fun. I'm excited for that. I also like the next book a lot. I read it as it came out. I, I picked that's it up. Gonna so. Be, so the thing that I will say before we finish is that I find it hilarious how much Kirk... Like, Shatner cannot have Kirk die. He cannot let go. Kirk can't actually die. But also, Kirk has to always die because Shatner is obsessed with the idea of Kirk's death. So you have him, like, he has now died three times in about a week uh, in terms of, like, the timeline of this character. 
Yes. Where he went and he sacrificed himself and went to the Necrosis. He sacrificed himself in Viridian 3 and now again he has sacrificed himself for the Borg. It is textually said that he is like incapable of not sacrificing himself and now that's like a part of his character that the Shatnerverse books have just invented. Um, so like they're all building towards this dream and I assume all that stuff will be dealt with next time. I know for a fact he can't die because there are more uh, Shatnerverse books after this and the whole exercise is like exists to bring him back so how they're going to deal with the fact that they have this idea of a canon death that they have to build towards but it can't actually ever happen because they won't let it i'm very interested to see the next book i know you know the answer to this yeah the only question i have for you is what does it have to do with Sarek? Uh, i what? <laughs> what but he hang on he just avenge me. He just dies because he goes insane. I know. Like he just dies from uh, that disease. I know. Bendy syndrome. Bendy syndrome. We talked about it like a couple about. episodes yeah. ago. So, what? <laughs> I know. It's very you, confusing. You said next month. Next month. All right. Here we go. <laughs> Avenger, written by William Shatner and Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens, is Jackson. Yes. Please free us. Give us the plug zone. You can find us at abnormalmapping.com, where we do a bunch of other podcasts, including Abnormal Mapping, which is a game club show at thebestgame.club. We play video games. Uh, also, another game club show is Novel Not New. is back on again. You just recorded the latest episode about Valhalla. That is also at abnormalmapping.com. It might be up by now. It might be up by now. Who knows? There is no way to say. Uh, in addition, uh, there is the Amory score with Molly and I, where we record ourselves going through the hell that is Cohen and Cambria. It's a lot. It's a whole thing. The last episode was very good. You should listen to it. Uh, we also have Fireside Friends, which is cool. That is Ryan, Allen, and Katie's podcast at firesidefriends.net. I think that's it for me. We also have... Uh, we are a Patreon-supported podcast network. You can go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping uh, to find out how you can help to support us. For $1 a month, you will get a bonus Patreon-only podcast called The Great Gundam Project, as me and Jackson once a week get together, watch two episodes of Gundam, and talk about them. Uh, they drop every Wednesday. We are going through Zeta Gundam, which is the second show. It's the one all of the cool leftists online really love. So, I don't know. Maybe get your politics here. Or don't. You probably shouldn't get your politics from anime. I'm going to put that line in the sand. But <laughs> if you want to listen to us talk about those politics, you can do that on that show. Look, I got some politics from code gears as a teen like it's really it don't don't watch anime don't i mean look we are we are doing this podcast because a large core of my being is defined by star trek the next generation so i guess i'm no one to talk <laughs> yeah yeah no um i'm <laughs> if you should listen to the gundam podcast it's interesting because we are extremely star trek people and gundam has a very different worldview so watching that brush up against like those two things uh, with especially being listened to a lot of fans of like gundam's interpretation of like how to do a political show in space uh it's a good podcast so if you appreciate both those two things you should listen yeah we are both like totally federation normies we're like if everyone just sat down and talked about their problems you wouldn't have them anymore yep. i'd say this really good so far so i don't know where i'm gonna fall you know uh you can find me on twitter at em underscore being and we will be back next week or next month with another one of these uh Go catch up on Discovery. All of our Discovery uh, episodes are done. We'll be back with Discovery uh, books as they come up and the show when it returns, of course. Outside of that, we're done for now. So see you 
out there. Pack my bags. Last night, pre-flight. Zero hour. 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high. As a kite by then. Miss the earth so much. I miss my wife. I think it's, it's going to be, be 